I'm about as convinced about white supremacy as I am about Jesus. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> like you can't talk me out of this joint. You know what that's, I mean? <laughs> that's, a, that's a great title for your book. Convinced about two things, white supremacy and Jesus. <laughs> From First Look Media and Panoply, this is Politically Reactive. I'm Debbie Kamal Bell. And I'm Hari Kundabowu. The show where two comedians try to make sense of politics in America. Uh, I don't really feel funny today, man. Maybe one comedian and one future NPR personality? I'd trade you for Ira Glass any day. On today's episode, we're going to talk about what everybody in America has been talking about the last few days. It started with the police killing Alton Sterling in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and the police then killing Philando Castile in Falcon Heights, Minnesota. And of course then, the five police officers killed in Dallas, Texas, at what started out as a peaceful protest. I know it's been a hard week. We're all trying to figure things out. And today, we're hoping to have a productive conversation. A lot of people are trying to do that. In the tradition of politics-making strange bedfellows, we had rapper Snoop Dogg in the game at a unity march alongside the LAPD officer graduation on the day after the Dallas shootings. Our whole mission today was to move in peace and to show that LA can be unified and not to bash the police, but to come up here and get some dialogue and some communication. And Newt Gingrich saying something nuanced? If you are a normal white American, God damn it! The truth is, you don't understand being black in America. But not all former congressmen were trying to unite America. Check out Joe Walsh from the great state of Illinois, who gave us his thoughts on Twitter. It read in part, this is now war. Watch out, Obama. Watch out, Black Lives Matter punks. Real America is coming after you. I think Obama's words and the deeds of Black Lives Matter, I think they have contributed to the death of police officers in this country. Jesus Christ. Yep, we sure could use some God up in here. And that's why today our guest is Reverend Michael McBride, known as Pastor Mike. He's the lead pastor of the Way Christian Center in Berkeley and the director of Urban Strategies for the PICO Network and the Live Free Campaign, who organized the faith community to end mass criminalization of black and brown people. It's all coming up on Politically Reactive. Hurry, say hello to Pastor Michael McBride. Hello, Pastor McBride. How are you? I'm good, brother. How's it going? Good, good. It's a pleasure to have you on our podcast today. Especially well, so so quickly. He, this happened at 3 yes. in the morning. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Just up, up doing some light, light uh, revolutionary work. <laughs> <laughs> I'm doing some light revolutionary work. Can, can I ask a, a, a quick question? Um, so I'm, I'm not a Christian. So do you prefer your excellency or your honor? My favorite asshole. How about that? No. People uh, <laughs> call me Pastor Mike. Pastor Mike. Uh, Pastor Mike sounds great. Yeah. Yes. Uh, and, and does it offend you that uh, to, that you're on that one of us is an atheist? I'm not pointing fingers. No. Because I because no. I can't point fingers no, we, to the guy uh, in New York City. Everybody has to start. A, oh, everybody has to start from somewhere. So where, 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 where else better to start than non-believing? Uh, look at this. <laughs> Here we go. Here we go. Uh, I'm a Hindu, so I believe a lot. Oh, okay. right. <laughs> I, uh, you're even more gods than the average gods. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, this is, uh, I mean, I'm glad we're starting off on a, on a light note because this has been a hard mm. uh, 400 years for black people in this country, yeah. but especially hard period this last week or so. Yeah. Uh, for a lot of people, you came to prominence uh, through the work you did in Ferguson. Hmm. When you went to Ferguson and, and, you know, you are you are you're a pastor. You're also an activist. 
Uh, in some sense, you're literally doing what Jesus would do. Mm, you know, definitely. definitely. People, a lot of people forget that the, that Jesus' big thing he brought to religion was the social justice thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, do you ever feel? So, this is a big question that there is a that you get pressure from religious people to not be so socially active because a lot of times at church we like to sort of just focus on the book and not what's going outside in the world. Yeah, I definitely think, unfortunately, uh, if if I were to just speak as a Christian, we've traded in the crucified Messiah. When I say Jesus, I talk about the dark-skinned Palestinian Jew who was born uh, in the hood called Nazareth, who was very acquainted with uh, being targeted by the state of his day and uh, was unfairly arrested, uh, uh, tried in a kangaroo court, and executed by uh, the Roman Empire. Uh, if 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 you can't uh, you know associate with that kind of Jesus, um, then I think you are uh, really you know worshiping a God you've created in your own image. And I think that's part of what has been a great challenge in the Western Church and particularly the American Church. Uh, James Cone, a black theologian, he says that too often American Christianity has become comfortable being a chaplain to uh, white supremacy. And so uh, this Jesus that I serve and that I follow is is certainly someone that I think has a radical vision of inclusivity and uh, would talk about uh, the ways in which the poor, the dispossessed, women, uh, folks who are experiencing injustice, how can they have a radical transformation towards uh, what he would call the kingdom of God? I love Dr. King's description, the beloved community. So many mics were just dropped right there. Like, so, <laughs> it, was just like, it was like we got carpet bombs with mics dropping. Like, I was just like, whoosh, whoosh, whoosh. Is, are those the moments where people say amen? Yeah, they, they say amen and uh, you know jump up out their chair, swing from the chandeliers, roll on the floor. <laughs> Definitely it's a lot of, lot, of, lot of good responses. It's always difficult to talk about race, hmm. like especially between different races. As a, a pastor of color, how do you... How do you deal with your other, like other religious people, other pastors who do not share your vision? Is the conversation more awkward or less awkward than it normally is when people talk about race? So, as a pastor who comes out of the Black Church prophetic tradition, um, I've been trained that you have to speak the truth in love to power and to people who are not always ready to hear the truth. People want to believe a beautiful lie rather than like live with the ugly truth. And the ugly truth is that um, race, white supremacy, racial hierarchy, however you want to talk about it, is uh, robbing every single individual uh, in this country of their full humanity. Hey, Harry. Yeah. Let's talk about white supremacy for a second. Well, that's my favorite thing to talk about. It was also my New Year's resolution was to say white supremacy more. So white supremacy, white supremacy, white supremacy. White power. No, no, no. 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 White supremacy. See, I think a lot of people listening right now, uh, hashtag the white people, when they hear white supremacy, they think like the Ku Klux Klan and neo-Nazis. They don't realize what Pastor Mike is talking about, that they benefit from a system of white supremacy. Right. A system that values white people over every other kind of people, right? Whether it's something historic like redlining, where black people were only allowed to live in certain places and, and weren't given bank loans. I mean, that benefited white people and put black people at disadvantage. That's that's white supremacy, and that's a government system. Or you think about somebody like Justin Bieber. Is Justin Bieber a really good singer? Or are a lot of people just going, that's crazy that that white boy can sing at all? That last single was really good, man. Ugh. The one about it, like, he's talking with his mom and stuff. It's a little sexist, but it's pretty good. I'm not even going to have any more Justin Bieber. The fact that we're talking about Justin Bieber more than we should is white supremacy. 
to bring it into the current moment, to go back to when you went to Ferguson, I felt, and a lot of people felt, and I don't know if you felt this way, I don't want to speak for you, you can speak to, speak to how you felt, that that was a moment that was going to precipitate some sort of change about how we are, how black and brown bodies are policed in this country. It felt, and then Black Lives Matter is a part of that, lots of conversations, uh, you know, your work is a part of that, my work, or his work is a part of that, but now we have this new moment where it feels like we didn't take advantage of the last moment enough, or, or any of the last moments. Does this moment feel different to you, or does it feel like more of the same? By this moment, I mean with Alton Sterling from last week and Philando Castile and then the, the thing that happened in Dallas with the five police officers and the 12 other people. How does this moment feel to you? Well, it's definitely different in the sense that we're not starting. Uh, you know, I'm a football fan, right? So when you have the kickoff, you start at the 20-yard line if you get a touchback. I'd say we're now probably at the 40-yard line. Okay, okay. <laughs> you know, I feel right. like we're moving the ball down the field, but I don't, I don't think we've made it into – you know, our edge of the field yet. Yeah. You know, I do think that um, racial hierarchy, white supremacy, uh, neoliberal ideas of, of social order, these are hard, hard uh, enemies to, 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 to annihilate, to wipe yeah. out. Um, these are very entrenched ideas. Um, and honestly, uh, in the age of uh, Barack Obama, um, it's been very difficult, I think, to uh, for a lot of folks to deal with the cognitive dissonance of systemic racism with a black man at the highest kind of office of the land. And so one of the challenges, I think, of the age of Obama is that we've reduced racism and racial hierarchy to interpersonal interactions and, and have rendered invisible the systemic forces that actually make racism and degradation possible. So I think these incidences have now brought it to light in such a way where it's kind of virtually impossible for anyone with a reasonable, like, uh, you know, set of eyes and a heart um, to deny that, man, there's something radically wrong with the way certain people, particularly with a lot of melanin in their skin and and that are poor, mm -hmm. there's a, there's there's something wrong with this picture. And uh, so I, I think we've we've moved further. We don't have to like now define police brutality. We don't have to define uh, terms like racial profiling. We don't have to define police and executive uh, excessive force. Um, that's that's a that's a big thing. Now we're trying to real move beyond. Uh, you know, cameras as the, you know, panacea. Remember that that was the big thing last time. Well, we just got to get a camera on mm -hmm. an officer. Now you have cameras on officers and officers are getting convicted. I remember thinking that was the solution. I remember being that brother who was like, if we get some cameras on, I mean, I remember feeling yeah. like, well, that's the thing. And, it, and, and a lot of us who've been involved for a while knew it wasn't going to be the thing because <clears throat> if, if, if you don't believe, if you're starting off with a premise, right, that, um, Law enforcement officers uh, are are inherently um, uh, 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 immutable, mm -hmm. right? Even what you're seeing with your eyes, you can be convinced that that was obviously something that was necessary. And 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 the, so the body cameras we were finding uh, were were not able to overcome like that initial. Uh, doubt that officers actually had some kind of animus or uh, implicit or explicit bias. And then there was still no conversation on the back end around the process. If an officer uh, is able to uh, use uh, their 
a police union contract or their policies and procedures, the um, uh, Fourth Amendment and all these other kinds of tools to pretty much explain away the brutality and aggression we're all seeing with our own two eyes. It just wasn't it just wasn't going to be adequate enough. So um, but it's still a part of the solution. You know, we're, we're in a better place, but we still have a long way to go. And I think uh, just seeing what's happening in Baton Rouge right now and uh, and Minnesota and other places, Atlanta here uh, in, in the Bay Area, just seeing still the aggression of police officers to nonviolent protesters. Um, it's a terrible thing to have to watch. And for me, it's it's also, also very much a, a trigger of my own trauma we, we endured there in Ferguson. For people who don't know, can you explain the work that you did in Ferguson? We were invited... Um, by some of the clergy we work with, you know, my my work largely started off uh, in 1999. I was physically and sexually assaulted by some police officers, and in San Jose, and I started doing racial profiling work um, then, police accountability work. When I came home from uh, seminary at at Duke in North Carolina. Um, we launched our church and our immediate efforts were around violence prevention. So we helped launch this violence prevention campaign that we call the live free campaign. And, uh, you know, went to a dozen cities across the country, got great reductions of gun violence, gun related homicides. Um, and so we became known for that in a lot of different places. Clergy knew us because we were going to big conferences, church conventions, really trying to activate faith leaders to get into the streets and do peacemaking work. When Ferguson happened, there was this narrative that was already being created that the reason why the police were, uh, you know, cracking down so hard on the protesters were because the Bloods and the Crips and all these 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 kids were just out there shooting at the police and doing all this kind of stuff. So the clergy, because they weren't outside, were believing that narrative. So they called like me, Brian, we need you here on the ground to come help us out with this with these kids. I was watching some of the streams and I was like, man, thank God somebody invited me to come because I want to get down there and I want to do some work. This is like I felt from the beginning looking at that, that this was our generation's Selma. I just saw yeah. it. And I said, you know, I didn't want to parachute in without an invitation, without relationships. So when we got there, we first night, our team was outside. Everybody got tear gassed. Everybody got smashed on. And it became clear to us that the only gang out there were the police. The only people who were provoking and filled with violence and rage uh, to the point of physical um, uh, harm were the police. And and that for me and us, I think, um, created a totally different um, uh, perspective and lens to see and understand uh, the level of that problem. Our generation had not seen tanks ro- rolling down mm-hmm. our, the street, right? And I, I think we, we, we have to appreciate again talking about are we in the same place? We're not in the same place because now people know what they're going to get. They know they what they know up. what the cops have in the it, it, at the precinct that they didn't know before. Man, but when we were in Ferguson on Florissant, West Florissant, yeah. and they were bringing tanks, and they had a whole they cleared out a whole Target parking lot. I mean, they closed up at least ten businesses, and they had an arsenal of Humvees and tanks. And so we're going up there to do interviews with the press, yeah. with Democracy Now. I, I did one with Democracy Now, and they and they <laughs> they had in the background like these military vehicles, <laughs> and you're just like, "Yo, is this the United States of America? This is bananas!" I mean, the whole thing was yeah. just. 
And then at nighttime to see the soldier formations these folks were using coming into crowds and picking women and children up by their ankles. They were shoving me in the back with their butt of their rifles and calling me the N-word and calling me animals. And I'm the preacher with a clergy collar on and my white Air Force Ones. And I'm like, man, I'm supposed to be out here trying to be a peacemaker. And this is how you treat me. I mean, the whole thing was just such a terrible thing. But... Uh, the young people I fell in love with out there. I mean, these young folks, some of the most brave, brilliant young people who out of nothing figured out how to organize a level of resistance against this apparatus for almost a full four, five, six months um, and really sparked what I believe is this generation civil rights movement. Every single person who is engaged in what is now known as Black Lives Matter came to Ferguson, I believe, either contributed to the radicalization of this generation or they themselves got radicalized. Oh, quick note to any of our listeners who are regular watchers of Fox News. Pastor Mike means radicalized in a good way. Come out, they're conservative. There is no radicalized in a good way. Oh, yeah. And why are they watching Fox News and listening to our show? Huh. It was something magical in the air. You would hear people say, standing in front of tanks, I've never felt so powerful. Is stopping all gun violence something that maybe we can rally behind more so now because of Dallas? I hope so. I mean, again, it is somewhat of a blow to me, honestly, just hearing that question, right? Because I have to bury teenagers even still today. Um, I have to bury family members uh, who whose lives are so important to the uh, congregation uh, full of of people. They mourn just as much as folks are mourning for the police officers who, who were killed. So for me, I, I'm trying to figure out how do we move against that kind of hierarchy of the value of lives. I, I hope that people can see and understand that preventable violence related to guns is something that we need to think about much more daily. Um, we have at least, what, 80-something gun-related deaths every day. We have a mass shooting uh, every day in this country, cumulatively. Half of these, uh, more than half of these uh, gun-related deaths are suicides, uh, largely white males. So just think of the hopelessness, the mental illness, et cetera, that must be in place for um, our young white men in this country that they are killing themselves more than folks are being uh, killed by another person. I mean, that's that's a terrible statistic that's not even being paid attention to. And then we think of the gun-related homicides. These are largely African-American men uh, between the ages of 18 and 35 all across the country uh, killing themselves with weapons they do not build, they do not ship into their communities, they do not own uh, gun shops or manufacturing uh, plants, and yet they're finding themselves... Uh, more easily able to find a gun than they are a book or a job or or some housing. I mean, it's a terrible reality. I, I, I do think that maybe there are moments where uh, the country's consciousness can be raised. Uh, the, the death of these these uh, officers at the hands we were being told um, is is a, a former army veteran who obviously had some form of post-traumatic stress disorder, um, obviously was trained by this government to kill people. And uh, it shows us that the human person is not prone to being turned into a killing machine. 
And I've, I've never said this. I say this a lot, but I rarely say it to a preacher. Preach, brother, preach. <laughs> <laughs> I just realized I say it all the time to people who don't have a collar. But this time I'm going to say it to somebody who get, who actually hears this a lot. Preach. And the other thing you did in the middle of that awesome bit of uh, rhetorical flourishes in there is you ruined, I don't know why you did this, but you ruined the idea that you don't like white people by saying you don't want white people to die at the hands of suicide. <laughs> you no. just, you just it, people, there's going to be some people who listen to this who are going to want to put you, and this happens to me all the time, and I can't say I'm married to a white woman enough <laughs> to say that you hate white people because you're talking so much about black people. I hate white supremacy. Now, this is an important conversation, bro. Yes. God did not create folks who are identify as white people as white. God created them Irish, yes. Polish, Celt, a cultural oh, yes. connection to a land and a place There's and literally a story. Not a white landia, is Absolutely. what you're saying. Other, the, this Portland, Oregon <laughs> aside. <laughs> White, whiteness is a creation of modernity. Right. That that attempts to essentialize and perform racial hierarchy. And I I think it's so important for people to just keep appreciating that when we're talking about white supremacy, we're talking about even trying to set white folk free. And and, and it's hard to be free. Believe me, (laughs) you know, I, I work I work with black. I work with every and freedom is a hell of a thing. Uh, to reach for, but I I don't hate white people, man. I mean, <laughs> hatred hatred is not is not a a, a tool that I, I I try to tap into a lot. Now I, I get angry at some yeah. white folk. I got to keep it real, yeah. Because you know, um, often uh, well meaning and folks who don't have good intentions uh, who who are white are often in the way of liberation of all people, including themselves, because they're trying to reach for this ideal they'll never get. So I I, I, I love white people, all you white people out there. I love you, man. <laughs> I love you, sis. But I, I want us all to be free, and, and, and I hope that uh, I hope you have enough love in your heart to, to, to join us in the liberation fights of our, our generation. Does it make it easier to explain this kind of stuff to white people as a pastor? Like, does that buy you an extra 30 seconds? <laughs> <laughs> well, when I'm preaching this stuff, I get an extra 45 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I, I, it, not, it, I don't know. That's a great question. I remember I was in a place in the Midwest and nobody interrupted me that much, you know. Uh, <laughs> you know, I remember one guy did a Barack Obama. What's the guy, Joe Wilson? You lie! Like, uh, right when I was up speaking, like, he did that to me because he just was, he couldn't take it, I guess. Yeah. Um, so, I don't know. I mean, I'm really not that hung up on um, people. I, I don't guess I don't keep a good scorecard. Score I'm not hung up on do people accept what I'm saying, et cetera. Like, I try to be... Uh, an active listener and and keep an impressionable heart in mind because I love people. I love ideas. I love conversation. But I do believe this piece about white supremacy, I'm convinced about to my bones. Uh, I'm I'm about as convinced about white supremacy as I am about Jesus. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> like you can't talk me out of this joint. You know what I mean? That's, that's, a, that's a great title for your book. Convinced about two things, white supremacy <laughs> and Jesus. That's right. Wow. And, and so, uh, so I'm hoping that... Um, I and we can learn to talk about it in ways where it doesn't shut folks down, where they can't get to a place of like healing and 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 uh, transformation. But you can't you can't change if we don't talk about it. While we're talking about congressmen with the first name Joe, who are assholes, you brought up <laughs> Joe Wilson. 
Well, uh, this past week in the middle of all this other stuff, uh, ex-congressman, now mm-hmm. now talk show host Joe Walsh was on Twitter. Yeah. And I just feel like he, he to me, not that he's important as a person or not that he's important as any sort of leader of white people, but I think he was important as the feelings that he was putting out on Twitter, many white people have. Mm-hmm. And he just sort of synthesized them. And as I said on Twitter, he took off the mask. Yeah. He took off the mask of politeness and showed us his true self. And he got a lot of people on Twitter who retweeted and liked it, which showed there's other people out there who feel this way, other mm-hmm. white people. It's a terrible thing. And, you know, my bishop, Bishop James Clark out of New York, he he told me this thing actually five years ago. He said he's a big CSI fan. And he, he said, you know, when they come to a scene and a crime has happened that's bloody and they wipe up all the blood off the floor, they think they've hidden the crime. But you can pour this this chemical. I think it was luminol or something onto the ground and and all the blood that was soaked into the wood and mm-hmm. the ground would just come to the surface. Yes. And Bishop Clark said mm-hmm. Barack Obama's election has been that that, <laughs> that chemical that, chemical <laughs> that has brought all this to the surface. Because I know people wanted a post-racial society so yeah. bad. I yeah. mean, yeah. you know, I tell my white friends don't you think I want a post-racial society? I mean, <laughs> yeah. I, I, if I, if I, if I can get one by yeah. just the blinking of my eyes, snap, like nobody enjoys like having to wake up every day and be someone's problem. Yes. Um, so I think people like Joe Walsh and, and you know, the, the ultimate gaslighter, Donald Trump. Hey everybody, Erica here, one of the producers on the show. I'm coming in because Hari and Kamau didn't think it was important to tell you about gaslighting, but I think it's really important. So here's what it is. Gaslighting is a kind of emotional abuse that is so insidious that it makes you question your own sense of reality. It comes from this 1938 play called Gaslight, which was later turned into an Ingrid Bergman movie. Essentially, a man screws with his wife by dimming the lights in the house and pretending everything's normal when she asks about it which of course makes her feel crazy. Fast forward to today, if you've ever been in a situation where you try to talk to your friend or boyfriend or girlfriend about something they did that hurt you, and they get so offended and hurt that you end up feeling bad and apologizing. (laughs) Oh, you're the kindest man in the world. (laughs) I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Then you've been gaslighted. Or if you try to talk to people about racism, and they in turn say you're the racist, a la George Wallace, then you've been gaslighted. So, gaslighting. Manipulation that makes you feel crazy. He said I wasn't any letter. He said I was going out of my mind. You're not going out of your mind. You're slowly and systematically being driven out of your mind. But why? Why? Okay, back to the show. And these people, like, I think that they have made it publicly okay to voice these kinds of uh, very diabolical and sinister uh, feelings that have often, I think, been buried in people's at least, um, you know, mouths. Like folks haven't been comfortable to say it. Um, And to to know that there are people out there in every level of society from, dare I say, the White House all the way down to the neighborhood who believe that there is a real America and certain people don't belong there. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's, a tr- it's a troubling thing, right? Because this is where I think we have to have understanding around racism and power dynamics. Um, if you really believe there's a real America, certain people don't belong there and you have the power to actually make that a reality. Mm-hmm. 
it's a ter- it's a terrible thing and and for someone who's a congressman to yeah. to be, have that in his heart and yeah. just think of the laws he voted on think and a congressman from he, Illinois like not a congressman oh, from terrible. a state that doesn't have black people it's terrible yeah, it's yeah. terrible mm-hmm. so you know I don't know man I, I I I think it's ironic that you know he can say these things and the administration doesn't come after him he's obviously he was threatening the president you know Pookie's been arrested for much less mm, yes <laughs> you know? yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just to be clear, Joe Wilson still got a uh, Joe, or Joe Walsh. I get my asshole Joe's confused. Joe Walsh still has a Twitter account. He's it's, still tweeting from it. It's Twi- crazy. And meanwhile, uh, Azalea Banks got shut down for saying horrible things, but much less horrible than threatening the president so the, and saying there's a war. These are subconscious reinforcements. I call them microaggressions, right, of, of racial hierarchy, right? Because when you see blatant contradictions in this regard— it just shows you uh, either subconsciously or even consciously, if as folks are saying now, you woke, right? It, it shows you that, man, there's really two Americas. Dr. King talked about it. There's two Americas, and we have to figure out, Dr. King also said, how can this country be born again? And and really, how do we have a new imagination about what it means to live as, as, as a people uh, on somebody else's land, but it's certainly in a, in a, in a, a global kind of uh, uh world and 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 reality honestly as of now it feels like the only thing that's come out of post-racial america is the phrase post-racial america (laughs) (laughs) like other than that that, we're still in the same place but we we got this new phrase (laughs) meet the new phrase same as the old phrase (laughs) i had i I wanted to follow up with i just wanted to know if you could clarify what because i'm sure there are listeners who want to know too but like can you clarify what it means when you say that white people will be set free by dismantling white supremacy? What does that freedom look so like? So if you look at racial hierarchy, right, and and the, the basis on which it is is built, it, it, it puts um, certain white bodies, white bodies that are male, that are elite and wealthy, and that are, uh, you know, have positions of, of inordinate power over over, say, systems or structures. White supremacy is really developed for a small number of white people. Now, if that is true, if you're, say, a white female, if you're a white male that's not rich, if you're a white male that's not rich and not elite, then you are constantly attaining for a a, a sense of wholeness and being that is only reserved in a capitalistic society for a small number of individuals. And so when, when um, white folks uh, who are attaining and reaching for that, that place of whiteness that is kind of given the ultimate value in this country, they'll spend their whole lives voting against their interests. They'll spend their whole lives, uh, you know, trying to make sense of why they have lack and someone has more. Um, You'll even find books that talk about when Irish became white, when Jews Mm -hmm, became white. mm -hmm. I mean, there's all kinds of great literature out there that talk about, um, you know, the, the progression of certain European immigrants into whiteness. And it, don't you think it's happening with Latinos too? Like Latinos are being invited into whiteness. Oh, they're certainly being invited, and you know, if you know, 
now, you know, I don't mean to sound crass, but what fool wouldn't want to be white in this country? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, you get to, like, you know, wave a gun at an officer and don't get shot. You get to crash the economy, don't go to jail. You, you get, get to, to... You get to get you get, to, you get to bank loans? You get, you get all, yeah, bank loans, yeah. business loans. Like, I mean, ain't nobody no More fool More choices of houses here. to buy. The, pro- yeah. the problem with... More TV to watch. The problem with me and you is this melanin in our skin just won't go away. And, <laughs> and, 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 and I stay indoors. I try not to tan. <laughs> so, I, I use... I use SPF 1000. Right, right. So, so of course, I think the seduction of whiteness uh, is an important uh, um, thing that people have to resist, right? And that's why I say uh, white people need to be delivered from whiteness, right? <laughs> and, 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 and they do, you know? And, and black people have to be delivered from whiteness. And, and, and everyone who is in this society reaching for whiteness has to be delivered from that and really reach for the the beauty of their inherent dignity that is their story that is their culture that is their location not only their place of origin but the place where they live now and figure out how do we make um this tapestry of diversity that i believe is a gift from our creator how do we make that an asset and not a deficit it can't happen if everybody's trying to rush into an already crowded bus right uh mm-hmm. that is not intended to get get everybody a seat i mean can you imagine if there's only 40 seats on a bus and uh even the folks who are on the bus but have to stand up they still not you know experiencing the level of comfort as the folks sitting down much mm-hmm. less the people who don't make it <laughs> on yeah, the bus yeah, yeah. <laughs> right so i just think this 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 narrative of scarcity is really what i'm trying to you know kind of lift up whiteness is is not uh i think a destination spot for for white people <laughs> yeah. or for anybody and i think we should resist that did you hear that hurry we have to stop thinking of whiteness as a destination so we have to prevent tourism to maine isn't it weird that both Portlands are super white? Yeah. Does Portland mean white in some other language? <laughs> and I know it's hard, man. And I know these ideas and words in this moment just sound like, man, these people are crazy. Where are they getting this stuff from? Mm-hmm. Well, when you've lived on the underside of the belly of the empire, I think you have a certain perspective that um, people need to take more seriously. So many mics being dropped. <laughs> <laughs> To, to build off off that, and also the discussion about trying to get whiteness, to, you know, trying to elevate oneself to whiteness. What kind of coalition building do you see uh, with other communities of color, especially uh, in terms of what's been happening with p- police brutality and black people? Are there actually people reaching out? Because I feel like, as an Indian person, I feel like there's a lot of us who mm. think we can still get to whiteness, mm. and that ship is. Was never there. That ship was never there. <laughs> that ship. That ship took all its tea with it that it got from your <laughs> got from the country of India. So you know what's deep about your question, right? Like I think that um, the only way we can stay out of coalition is if we live in the world ahistorically. Um, that if we don't appreciate, man, that like everyone in these lands have experienced a certain kind of domination, genocide, exclusion. Um, that is a, sh- it's a shared reality of, of what it means to unfortunately seem to be human. This shared suffering that I think is often lost among folks who don't have a good grasp of history is what keeps us fragmented. I do think that in this moment, I believe it's important for people of color 
and poor white folks to really lean into relationships with one another. I think there's a certain kind of pain threshold around change uh, that oppressed people have that most white folk just don't have. Um, you know, a lot of uh, you know a lot of us know what it's like to try to push through a brick wall versus just trying to open a door, right? And so, I do think uh, in our work, uh, Black Lives Matter. Uh, uh, movements that are propping up everywhere, the dreamer movement that has been a, a mainstay for the last several years. Uh, I do think there's an important coalition that has to happen. One of my mentors, Dr. William Barber, calls it fusion coalitions, right? Mm -hmm. Coalitions that fuse the, the hurt and the pain and the interest of groups across difference uh, that allow us then to show up more powerfully to push against the corporate interests that are only successful because we remain so divided. Okay, so we got to let you go because you got to go out there and continue radically fighting the revolution. <laughs> uh, but I have two two questions. One, I know there's definitely uh, white people listening right now who want to help and are sort of like that uh, that white woman in the movie Malcolm X that starred Denzel Washington, <laughs> who who walks up and goes, "What can a white person like myself, who isn't prejudiced, what can I do to help you and, and further your cause?" What would you say to a, a, a white person right now who wants to help but is somehow scrambling for what to do? So <clears throat> I'll say a couple of things. Now, you know, I hope folks don't get, get too offended by what I'm about to say. So just brace yourself. Put your hands yeah. on, your, <laughs> on your chair and just, just hold on, baby. Hold on. Just let me finish before you just yeah. shut me off. Yeah. You have to do your own work of learning about the oppression of race, white supremacy, racial hierarchy. What does that mean? There's a great organization we work with called Showing Up for Racial Justice, uh, S-U-R-J, I think, dot org or dot com. Yeah. I would commission every white person uh, that is really serious about leaning into this moment around kind of ending racial hierarchy to take seriously the trauma that you have experienced, that all of us have experienced related to racial hierarchy. Do your own reading, your own studying around other white folk, because I have found in my organizing work over the years that most white folks showing up in racial justice spaces don't want to sound like a racist, so they can't bring their full self. Right. And so sometimes you need to be in an affinity group to kind of sound as terrible as you probably will say. <laughs> and, and, but you, I thought you, you say as terrible as you are. No, no, you, no. You, soft, not, you, you just yeah. sound terrible, yeah, just like yeah. I sound terrible, right? But you got to sound terrible around people that you really believe won't hold it against you <laughs> and, and give you a chance. Cause around your family. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but you need someone to check you, though. It's like, yo, that that wasn't cool. Like yeah. some, some of our family, like, they'll, they'll, they'll match and then... And then raise, raise our terrible. I see your horribleness, and I raise you with some slurs you've never heard right, before. Right, right, right. So <laughs> I, I think it's imp that's important, right? Like find some spaces where you can indeed um, do some work apart from people of color, black folk, brown folk, because we're carrying our own cross around this stuff, and it's very hard to have to educate white people while we're trying to like get free at the same time. Um, the second thing I'll say is in these moments, what does it look like to suspend? your uh your your um wisdom as the the superior and primary wisdom um preach there is a certain kind of of default in a lot of folks white folks in particular in in this social society we've been socialized to think white is right mm -hmm. right and everything else is suspect you know um and sometimes you have to suspend that 
that um, that trigger, that automatic assumption that you know, you have thought of something that these people around you haven't thought of. Oh, the classic, like, <laughs> how come black people don't just raise their kids? It's like, uh, well, dang, yeah, like, what do yeah. you think we try to do around here? Yeah. I can't raise my kid if, if yeah. you know, he can't walk to the store, play in the park or whatever, yeah. whatever. Yeah. So it just just like. Like swallow that for a little while and, and just and just and just be there. Follow the leadership of directly impacted people. Follow the leadership, the ideas, the thoughts. Bring your gifts and tools. Put it out there freely. Sometimes your ideas will be implemented. Sometimes they won't. Get used to not having to always be driving the bus. Get used to riding in the bus. Get used to being left off the bus. Mm-hmm. Get used to just being a part of a team, a squad, because I do think that um, we need everybody to get free. It's not going to be only because black folk uh, are working in black spaces and Latino folk are working in Latino spaces and, and Asian folks are working in Asians. And they, like, that's not the way God creates the world. I, I think that we have to have a radical interdependence upon uh, one another, but it's hard to do it when um, you haven't done your own work and when you're not willing to follow some of the folks that are uh, that I think are thinking about this a lot more uh, than the average person. I think it's interesting that it's so hard to coalition build uh, with people of color and, and the fact that you know so much of it is a ahistorical because I feel like so many people of color on a base level get along or understand each other on the fact that we talk shit about white people. <laughs> like, it's one of the most liberating things to be like, fucking white people, and the other person to be like, yeah, exactly. And it's, like, we get that part of it, but when it gets to work, ah, it's too much. Well, Like, it's just we want that moment of, like, understanding. That's yeah, it. yeah. So I, I always say that, you know, uh, uh, if talking talking um, or having some affinity around the shared pain caused by uh, the oppression of systems um, is is not the same as realizing um, that you becoming a power player in that system is something you need to be free from as well, right? So, you know, so me talking like uh, with with other folk of color, like, man, yeah, man, you know, white, my experience with white folks is this and this and this. And we had that kind of resonance. You can lead that conversation and still be reaching for whiteness. Oh, right. Like like whiteness, this idea that, you know, if we could be in that seat, we would do better. Right. Rather than changing the system. So that seat does not create the kind of of performance of oppression, marginalization, et cetera. That's the conversation we have to have. Because keep it real, like I said earlier, a lot of folks are reaching for whiteness, reaching for power, reaching for that ultimate sense of value and fulfillment and success. So that's how I think, you know, we have to not be co-opted by that. We we we, we all recognize the problem, but a lot of us still want to play that game because it's the only game in town and we have to we have to get a new game. Reaching for whiteness. Wow, that's... I feel like every time I'm going to be like, I want some ice cream. Wait a minute. Am I reaching for whiteness? <laughs> every time I take every time I take a job to make money. Wait a minute. Am I reaching for whiteness? Every time I tie my shoes. Hold on, brother. Don't just reach down there for whiteness. <laughs> That's a really heavy concept. It is. It is. Now, remember. Good morning. I'm Don't not me talking about whiteness by telling you good morning. I'm not talking about white people. Right? Yes, I'm talking yes. about a concept, an idea of racial hierarchy 
And I just hope my brothers and sisters that are hearing me, you know, don't over over associate what I'm saying. I mean, I, I think, again, this is these are ideas and concepts that have been created long before we were born. We we're born into it kind of like the Matrix. And we got to take that pill, baby. Now you're talking my language. Touch your neighbor. <laughs> Matrix 1, though, right? Not yeah, Matrix 2 and 3. No, okay, Matrix on 1. You okay. heard they got another Matrix coming out there. Yeah, I don't know. I that, don't know either. We'll talk about that off mic. We don't need to. <laughs> but uh, thank you for coming today, Oh, Pastor man, Mike. it's been great. My pleasure. Yeah, please come back again because I feel like we could just, we could just, me and her could just shut up and just let you talk. No, I'm, I'm a long-winded black preacher. I'm trying to work on that. <laughs> no, no, it's good. <laughs> we, need, we need more of that. But thank you for coming. All right. Right on. Thank you so much. Take care. So, come on, what did we learn today? I learned that there's more of my grandmother's church in me than I thought because several times I wanted to say, Amen, brother, Amen. And I learned when it's appropriate to say the phrase, Amen. <laughs> I also learned that Jesus is brown and supremacy is white. Yes. I also learned that Pastor Mike is my favorite pastor and you don't call pastors your excellency. I learned that Pastor Mike has a church right around the corner from my house and I've never been there. I feel like a bad black person. And I learned that pastors can have kids. <laughs> wow. Wow. Hurried at a lot of learning today. <laughs> I learned that we're on the 40-yard line of ending white supremacy and I can't wait to score a touchdown and see if that means that I get to own white people. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's going to do it for today's show. You can expect a new episode every week through the election. We've got some great ideas for guests and future episodes from you, the listeners. So please keep those coming. Just tweet us with the hashtag Politically Reactive. If you haven't done so, hit that subscribe button on whatever you're using to listen to the show. And maybe think about leaving us like a five-star review. It's a helpful way to help us spread the word for a new show like ours. And if you're really feeling us, check out some of our other projects. I've got a new album coming out on July 22nd on Kill Rockstars called Mainstream American Comic, which you can pre-order now at killrockstars.com slash hurry. Also, I'm about to go on a big tour uh, from July 29th to August 6th. Uh, I, I'm going to be in uh, Detroit, Chicago, Milwaukee, Brooklyn, and Portland, Maine, so I need to see you there. And I've got some other cool projects, too, like a podcast called Denzel Washington is the Greatest Actor of All Time, period, and my live radio show and podcast, Come Out Right Now. You can tune into the next Come Out Right Now live July 14th at 7 p.m. West Coast time on KALW.org. Politically Reactive is a production of First Look Media and is distributed by Panoply. The team includes Nick Borenstein, Lisa Langang, Erica Moo, and Max Jacobs. The show is engineered by Ted Muldoon. Thanks again to Reverend Michael McBride. Please check out the work he's doing for the Pico Network and for the Live Free campaign. You can find out how to get involved at livefreeusa.org. Thanks to Northgate Studios in Berkeley and Argo Studios in New York City. New York City? And thanks to Brontez Purnell for providing music for the show. And hey, before we go, white people, why don't you rewind this one and listen to it again? I mean, if you're still listening.